from the National Association of Evangelicals, welcome to today's conversation. Our topic, Faith and Foreign Aid. Host Leith Anderson, NAE President, talks with Rich Stearns, President of World Vision. Today's conversation is brought to you by Fuller Seminary. Their fully online MA in Intercultural Studies and fully online MA in Theology allow you to stay embedded in your current context while you learn from leading faculty practitioners. Prepare to effectively serve Christ's Church and communicate God's Word by customizing your degree with an emphasis in International Development and Urban Studies, Race and Reconciliation, Christian Ethics, or many others. Learn more at fuller.edu. And now, let's join in. I'm Leith Anderson, President of the NAE, here with Rich Stearns. Rich joined World Vision as its president in 1998 after working for several Fortune 500 companies, including serving as president of Parker Brothers Games and Lennox. So he brought corporate best practices to World Vision U.S. Donations tripled during his first decade as president, making World Vision U.S. a billion-dollar organization. It also seems appropriate to add that Rich and his wife were longtime donors to World Vision before he joined the World Vision team. He brings his heart, along with these years of corporate experience, to the ministry. Also, during his time as a business executive, he attended Park Street Church in Boston, which was instrumental in the founding of NAE. Rich wrote the best-selling book, The Hole in Our Gospel, which was named Christian Book of the Year for 2010, and then he wrote Unfinished in 2013. And there's lots more I could say about Rich, but I want to get into our conversation. So thanks for being with us today, Rich. Leith, it's great to be on the phone with you. So first of all, um, sort of a question from my uh, telling of your bio. What inspired, what led you to move from a very successful career in the corporate space nearly 20 years ago over into the nonprofit sector? Well, you know, Leith, I made a commitment to Christ uh, when I was about 23 years old, and uh, I did it while I was getting my MBA at the Wharton School, and I still remember that moment of... Uh, you know, my conversion, and uh, I made a promise to God. I said, uh, you know, I want to live my life for you, and uh, I will go wherever you call. I will do whatever you ask. Uh, I want to be obedient, and uh, uh, it seemed easy to say in 1974, uh, but many, many years later, uh, of course, I was asked to leave my corporate career by the Lord and to join World Vision, and, you know, the other influence in my life was my first 10 years as a Christian were spent at Park Street Church in Boston, which was one of the great missions churches in our country. And I think uh, my wife and I really got bit by the international missions bug and the desire to be part of the Great Commission, but also uh, getting a sense for our responsibility to help the, the poorest people on our planet. So it was kind of a combination of inspiration by my church and obedience based on my call and my commitment to the Lord. Well, you made a, a commitment to, to God, and so I don't think that God was surprised by switching your careers, but maybe you were a little bit surprised. So is this what you expected you were getting into, moving out of the for-profit world into the not-profit world? 
Well, in some ways, I didn't really fully appreciate what I was getting into, but I remember my wife saying, you know, uh, if this is God's will, we want to be inside of it and not outside of it, and so we made the commitment. But I think I would say that it has been an even greater blessing than I might have anticipated, and part of that blessing is um, World Vision has tens of thousands of staff around the world many of whom are some of the most inspiring, godly people I've ever met. And just the opportunity and the privilege to be uh, in relationship with so many Christians from so many countries uh, has really given me a sense of awe about the scope and the breadth of uh, the Church of Jesus Christ uh, worldwide. And, of course, it's, it's just a privilege to wake up every morning knowing that you're saving lives. You're bringing the gospel. You're 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 obeying, uh, you know the, the the commands of Matthew 25 to feed the hungry, to bring water to the thirsty, to care for the sick, and and, and those things. So, and and from a expectation standpoint, a ministry is very much like a company or a corporation in that you know you have fundraising or marketing. You 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 have a finance department. You have a human resources department. So. You have all of the same kinds of leadership and management oversight responsibilities. So much of it looked very familiar. Uh, it was, I just had to apply it in a, in a different kind of context. There is a sense in which I would just like to talk about uh, you and what your experience has been, your faith and living it out. But our topic today is on foreign aid or officially uh, international affairs budget. So kind of give us an introduction of what we're talking about when we talk about foreign aid, and why is this something that evangelicals should even be talking about? Well, yeah, first of all, uh, foreign assistance or foreign aid, um, what that is is our government every year spends roughly $25 billion on humanitarian assistance, uh, programs especially to help the economically underprivileged. They feed the hungry. They bring water to the thirsty. They help with maternal and child health and, and things of that nature. Um, foreign aid saves millions of lives around the world. And yet, I find that it's sometimes controversial with evangelicals about whether our government should be uh, undertaking such programs. And, you know, one of my thoughts about this is that you know, as Christians, most of us want our government to act in ways that are consistent with what we believe to be God's truth. You know, one uh, prominent example of that is our our pro-life orientation. You know, that we, for decades, have been trying to uh, ask our government to protect the unborn and protect the life of the unborn because that is a deeply held Christian value. Well, I think we should also be consistent because another deeply held Christian value is that we are to help the poorest people in the world and the downtrodden. Um, and uh, wouldn't we also want our government to be consistent with our Christian values in that way, that uh, shouldn't we do something, uh, given our wealth and our status in the world, to help the poorest people on the planet and to kind of demonstrate our values uh, to the world? Um, and I think foreign assistance is very consistent with our Christian values that we want to be a good neighbor. Um, uh, we want to be a nation that values human life and human dignity. Uh, we want to use our wealth in ways that are appropriate and be responsible in the world, be a responsible global citizen. You know, President Reagan once described America using a biblical reference uh, as a shining city on a hill. And if we're going to be a shining city on a hill, we, we have to lean into those uh, great 
American values that are really based on the Judeo-Christian ethic to begin with. I read a while back about a survey that was taken asking Americans what percentage of our federal budget do you think goes to foreign aid? And the, the survey results, it was, it was huge. It was like they thought a quarter of our entire federal budget goes to foreign aid. Actually, it's like 1% or, or even less than that. Isn't that right? Well, that's right. And every year, the Kaiser Family Foundation does a survey of several thousand Americans. And the, the, they ask them a simple question. What percentage of our federal budget do you believe is spent on overseas foreign assistance? And um, the average uh, respondent thought it was 26% of our federal budget. And it's actually about six-tenths of a percent. So out of every dollar, less than a penny of our federal budget is spent on overseas uh, foreign assistance. So, uh, and if you take all of the State Department, you know, all of our embassies, all of our diplomats, plus USAID and all of our foreign assistance programs, our contributions to the United Nations, to the World Bank, uh, to the World Food Program, Altogether, I think it's about 1.3% of the federal budget. Um, so it's a, it's, it's a very tiny amount of money relative to all the other things we spend uh, money on. So you could say it's a real bargain because that money is making a lot of friends around the world and saving millions of lives. I'm assuming that the six-tenths of a percent or even the 1.3% does not include uh, military arms and military aid, but what does it include? And, and what good is it done, or what, what's it actually accomplished? Yeah. Well, it includes a, a lot of things. You're right. The military, uh, military assistance is not included, but global health programs like maternal and child health, uh, uh, you know, in a recent year saved almost 5 million children's lives. Uh, food security programs uh, where uh, 18 million uh, children had their nutritional uh, status improved by U.S. foreign assistance in the last year. Uh, disaster and famine relief. Uh, on average, the U.S. government responds to an average of 65 uh, disasters every year. Of course, the refugee crisis has been very much in the news today. And what most Americans don't know, because we're debating on whether refugees should come here or not, is the U.S. government is the largest donor in the world to helping refugees where they are. You know, so in the Middle East, we're trying to help refugees uh, with food, with shelter, with sanitation, clean water, um, some economic opportunity. Uh, it also covers uh, President Bush's uh, HIV AIDS initiative, which was a massive AIDS relief plan that today is probably keeping 12 million people alive in Africa because they now have access to antiretroviral drugs. And that's important because those 12 million parents are now able to live long enough so that their children don't become orphans, uh, just abandoned and, and on their own. So those are just a few examples of what our foreign assistance pays for. And you know, one of the arguments I always make is uh, this helps keep us safe as well because foreign assistance programs, uh, um, we tend to do them in unstable parts of the world and it brings greater stability. It makes friends for the United States. Uh, it helps uh, young men in particular find livelihoods and jobs so they, they don't become radicalized. So it's, it's the proverbial ounce of prevention uh, that saves a pound of cure. And 
probably averts uh, a great deal of military uh, intervention in, in many cases. In fact, Secretary of Defense James Mattis uh, has said, if you cut the foreign assistance budgets, you'll have to give me more money because I'll need to buy more ammunition. Um, in fact, most uh, American generals and admirals high up in the military are big supporters of U.S. foreign assistance because it makes the, the world a more secure place and it makes America more secure. All this is making me think about my high school history class, and I don't even want to think about what my grade was, but at the beginning of the history of this country, it was an African nation, Morocco, that was the first to recognize the United States. It was France that uh, helped us in the American Revolution. And then when I think of foreign, I actually mostly think about the Marshall Plan after World War II. What's the history here? And have we been doing this since George Washington, or have we just been doing it in our generation? Well, my history grade might have been lower than yours, Leith, but um, I think the Marshall Plan was was really the first real modern understanding of uh, you know the the role we have in the world. And of course, Europe was totally devastated after World War II, and Germany in particular. Um, and the Marshall Plan was literally a vision to rebuild Europe and uh, believing that a strong, democratic, rebuilt Europe would be a great ally to the United States and would promote a more peaceful world going forward. And so it was this massive program that the United States funded after World War II at the very moment when we couldn't afford it because we had spent so much on the war, uh, so much on the military, but uh, we, we found a way to, to pay for it. And of course, the European nations today remain uh, some of our greatest allies, and Germany, one of our strongest allies. Uh, and I think that led to a, a sense that we have an important role in the world, um, uh, both morally and ethically, to, uh, uh, to promote American values and to promote democracy and freedom but also human dignity and human life, the value of human life. And I think that's been, uh, that's the America that I've grown up to be proud of, the America that is generous and, and, and unselfish in their approach to the world. Uh, 1961, President Kennedy established uh, the U.S. Agency for International Development, US, uh, known as USAID, uh, with a mission to fight extreme global poverty and to promote resilient democratic societies. And USAID has been uh, doing that ever since the, the 1960s. So we have a, a wonderful history of, of engaging with the rest of the world in, in a very redemptive and positive way. That's good for the world, and that makes me proud of America, that this is what we do. But I'm going to assume that we're not alone in this. So other development, developed countries are doing the same thing, right? Well, that's correct, and uh, um, and actually, this is a, a little bit embarrassing because when you look at um, who are the major contributors to foreign assistance programs around the world, um, as you would expect, all of the wealthier nations uh, of the global north are significant donors to foreign assistance to uh, the poorer countries. Uh, but if you rank that foreign assistance spending as a percentage of our gross domestic product, uh, the size of our economy, uh, the United States uh, ranks only 21st on the list. So there are 20 countries that are more generous than we are as a percentage of their economy. And uh, the, the, the global nations uh, have set a goal of uh, donating 0.7% of GDP uh, to foreign assistance, believing that if every one of the developed nations could, you know, 
provide 0.7% of their GDP to the developing world, we could really create a better, safer world for all of us. Uh, we are way below the 0.7% target. We're at about 0.2%. So uh, um, I think Great Britain is at 0.7%. Norway and Denmark are actually above 0.7% in their donations. So we're contributing a lot of money in absolute dollars, uh, but it's not as much as some of our, uh, our fellow allies. Here's another fact that most people will find surprising. You know, we are a generous nation, and I think last year Americans gave more than $360 billion to churches and nonprofits. So that speaks to a lot of generosity. However, only 4% of that $360 billion of charitable giving went to help causes overseas, any overseas causes. 96% of our charitable giving was spent on ourselves, was spent on our country, our colleges, our universities, our hospitals, our uh, ministries, our churches. Um, so it's uh, we could do more. We could do more internationally than we're doing. Well, that brings us back to World Vision and what World Vision does. But particularly, let's tie together what we're talking about here with foreign aid and how that connects to the ministry of World Vision, but not just World Vision, other evangelical humanitarian organizations as well. Well, that's a good point, and I think a lot of Americans don't realize that um, Christian organizations are one of the major partners of USAID and the U.S. government around the world, and that probably comes out of our missionary past where so many you know, medical clinics and, and health interventions around the world were provided by mission organizations uh, historically. And, and, and Christians have always been kind of far-flung in the sense that we're all over the world. It's part of the Great Commission. We go into all the world uh, uh, hoping to make disciples and to proclaim the good news. So we tend to be in these places as Christians. And organizations like World Vision and World Relief were founded you know, right after World War II and uh, um, were part of that optimistic generation that said we can change the world and but we receive US government grants uh, in significant uh, amounts of dollars so last year World Vision United States received uh, roughly 240 million dollars of US government grants and as a Christian organization we we use those dollars for the purposes intended by the government so it might be to drill wells or to promote maternal and child health or to uh, uh, give microloans to the poor to help them stand on their own two feet. We can't use that money for religious purposes. It would be inappropriate to do so. Uh, but we can use our private donations to further our religious mission while we use our government dollars to do tangible things like drill wells and build schools and clinics. So it's, it's really a great partnership where we become a great partner of the U.S. government and uh, and, and uh, they become a partner with the American people and the others that donate to World Vision. I've had people say to me, and I'm sure you've had people say to you, well, the United States has a huge debt and we have continuing deficits, so the debt's getting bigger. Wait until we pay off all of our debts first, and then we'll help somebody else. Well, how do you respond to that? Well, you know, I, I first of all, I think, uh, as we've said already, foreign assistance is such a small part of our budget and, and, and really a very vital and necessary part of our budget. We are not going to get out of debt by uh, cutting back on foreign assistance. So this would be like if you had a family budget crisis and you said we're living way above our income, how can we solve our family budget crisis? 
and you said, I know, we'll cut we'll cut out toothpaste. We won't buy toothpaste anymore, and that'll help solve the problem. Well, it wouldn't really help solve the problem. It's too small and too insignificant to, to really make a difference. And you'd end up with higher dental bills because you, you'd you start to get cavities and, and, and there would be unintended consequences. And I think uh, I think the same is true of foreign assistance. It's, it's a vital program. If we severely cut it back, it would lead to other consequences in the world that would have far uh, more expensive solutions to them, namely involving our, our military. So. Uh, and, and I don't think it's good policy to balance our budget on the backs of the poor. Um, there's other ways that we can cut back on uh, our government spending that, that don't uh, literally take the lives of innocent people around the world who ha have, uh, uh, have been helped by uh, U.S. foreign assistance. So uh, I just think it's, uh, there's a little bit of fool's gold there thinking that we can balance our budget by dramatic cutbacks in foreign assistance. Those are really good answers. I'm going to use your answers, but I was also thinking that I've never heard of a pastor who preached a sermon saying you should start giving to the church after you've paid off your mortgage and all your other bills. So I don't think we're playing by the same set of rules in helping people who are overseas. But that's my commentary. Let's go back to another question for you, and that is, what do you see as the greatest poverty-related need in the world today? And What are the needs, but what are the opportunities that also come with those yeah. needs? Well, first, I want to just share some good news because I think most uh, most Christians, most Americans, don't realize uh, how much progress has been made in the world for the poorest people in the world. And basically, since 1990, the number of people living in the most extreme poverty, less than a dollar twenty-five a day of income, has been cut in half. And uh, one of the statistics we look at as a child-focused organization is child mortality. What, how many children under the age of five die before their fifth birthday? And in 1990, it was about um, uh, 35,000 children would die every day of preventable causes. These are just what Bono called stupid poverty. You know, they, they get diarrhea, and because they don't have the most rudimentary access to health care, uh, they die of diarrhea, they die of the common cold, they die of malaria. All of these things can be dealt with. But it was 35,000 children a day in 1990. Today it's less than 17,000 children a day. It's been cut in half. Maternal mortality has been cut in half. The AIDS, uh, spread of AIDS has been greatly reduced. And as I said, children are, 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 are seeing their parents live to, to raise them and they're not becoming orphans. Um, but, on every measure of extreme poverty, uh, we've pretty much cut it in half in just the last 25, 26 years. So we should be encouraged that we're winning this war against uh, extreme poverty, and that's the good news. So it should encourage us to keep going. Uh, today in the world, uh, there are some terrible things happening. The refugee crisis is, is massive. More than 65 million displaced people in the world who fled their homes. Uh, mostly because of violence, sometimes because of famine and drought. Um, but the refugee crisis really requires our attention. Um, right now, Leith, uh, one of the biggest famines in modern history is predicted to hit East Africa, Nigeria, and Yemen. More than 20 million people are at risk right now. And because famine is what we call a slow-onset disaster, it's not all over the news right now. It's not dominating the headlines like an earthquake might. 
Um, but by the end of the summer, we believe that 20 million people will be hungry and at risk, and we're going to start to see those images of children, you know, dying, uh, skin and bones, dying of malnutrition in the world. So those two things are are really profound right now uh, in the world, and uh, you know, those are the things I would I would point out, and and we need to rise to this occasion to, to, to try to help those people. It's heartbreaking when you talk about children and families in famine and there's not much they can do about it and if others don't help. But there's also a sense in which I and others can feel so overwhelmed by this that there's a kind of a tragedy fatigue. that You start thinking, mm-hmm. What can I do? Really, what difference can I make for 20 million people? So what can we do? How how can we, I, you, how how can we make a difference? Well, that's a really a critical question. And you put your finger on, you know, a a very common human emotion about overwhelming problems. And uh, what can we do? We're just, I'm just one person. You know, the founder of World Vision, uh, Bob Pierce, uh, back in the 1950s, kind of understood this phenomenon, and and he came up with this idea to do child sponsorship, where, you know, I can't do everything, I can't cure global poverty, but I could help this little girl named Agnes in Tanzania, I could help this little boy named Joseph in Ethiopia, and you know, for just a little over a dollar a day, uh, you know, uh, a Christian can sponsor a child through World Vision to uh, to to really make a difference in that child's life because. We're able to t- take that money uh, and the money that is given for thousands of children and 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 put those funds together to to really make really make a difference in those child's communi- communities. Um, and then you know here's a statistic that blows people mind people's mind: clean water. There are 660 million people in the world that don't have access to clean water. They they they've never taken a clean bath or shower in their life, they don't have access to clean water. The cost to bring clean water to a person for life is $50, $50. So, you know, most of us can come up with $50, and, and that would bring clean water to a child for life in some village in Africa or Southeast Asia. So these little things make a difference, and uh, things are surprisingly cost-effective uh, when you when you work to help the poor around the world, a dollar goes a long way. And, and I would also say churches have a real opportunity as well. Uh, you know, I always talk to pastors and say, you know, your missions program needs to be strategic. You need to think it through and how you're going to spend your money. And you've got to kind of assess your church. Are, are we helping the poor? Are we helping the sick? Are we helping... Uh, feed the hungry and bring water to the thirsty and are we welcoming the stranger and and are we aligning our missions programs with the values of uh, of the New Testament and the Old Testament and uh, and and churches can be powerful forces there are 350,000 churches in America and if every one of those churches said we're going to make a difference in the world in a significant way uh, that was Christ's plan to change the world that his church would change the world uh, and they would change it by bringing the good news, uh, uh, but also living out the great commandment by being by loving our neighbors and, and caring for the, the least of these. So uh, the church is God's plan to change the world. I always say it's his plan A, and he doesn't have a plan B. There are some people who would say, ah, we don't need the church. This is the government's responsibility. They should do it. And then there are others in our Christian community who say, the government should keep out of this. This is a Christian responsibility. So... 
what's the relationship between the two? What are the two roles here? Yeah, I mean, it's really a, a false dichotomy because, uh, you know, working for a better, safer world is, is a job that requires everybody to participate. So governments can uniquely do the things that only governments can do. They can operate at scale. Um, they can interact with other governments, you know, on a government-to-government -government basis. They can uh, work with a nation in Africa to strengthen their health system by not just providing money, but providing expertise and guidance and advice and consulting, if you will. Um, they can do things that uh, a ministry or a church can't do just because of the nature of the government. When, when the great uh, tsunami hit, uh, Asia in late 2004, um, the U.S. military played a significant role in bringing in supplies and, and helicopters and mobilizing resources that none of us could have individually or organizationally have accomplished, and they were a great partner uh, in all of that. Uh, the church provides a unique opportunity as well because uh, they can relate church to community or church to church across the world. And at the kind of the micro level, churches can make uh, a difference in partnering with small churches or small nonprofits around the world and providing resources and counseling and relationship in, in those ways. And as we've said, individuals can, can make a difference as well. Um, so we all have a role uh, to play in this. And uh, uh, if we all play our role well, uh, we, we can really make a difference in the world in, in, in amazing ways. You didn't turn it into a commercial. Let me turn it into a commercial for World Vision. If somebody wants to support a child or to provide money for wells or a church, how do they actually go about it? Do you do it online? Do you call somebody? How does it actually work? Well, it's pretty simple. Uh, we've got a website, worldvision.org, where you can find information about the various needs in the world today that we're uh, addressing. Um, it would be almost impossible to miss the opportunity on our website to sponsor a child somewhere in the world. Uh, there's information about how you can help with the refugee crisis. There's information about how you could contribute to help uh, with a famine. Um, there's also some wonderful programs that we have, like the 30-hour famine, where youth groups can learn about poverty and hunger by fasting for 30 hours and raising some money. We just finished, uh, uh, in the last few weeks, the uh, Global 6K, uh, an opportunity to walk for water, where we had 27,000 people in 18 countries uh, walking 6K, uh, 6 kilometers for clean water and raising money. And 6K is an unusual number, but it's the, the distance the typical child or woman walks each day to fetch clean water for their families. There's a lot of ways to get involved and to get your church involved, and you can find them on our website. One last question, and that relates to catastrophe. So when there's a tsunami in Indonesia or there's an earthquake in Haiti, then contributions from churches and individuals to World Vision and other agencies spike. Is that correct? And yet the, the needs are ongoing. Almost, we almost need to spike when there's not a tragedy in the news. Well, that's right. I mean, certainly when there is a global tragedy that strikes, um, a window opens and money pours through it to most uh, international nonprofits. And, and that money is desperately needed because if there's a terrible earthquake in Latin America tomorrow, um, 
we we are one of the first responders. World Vision is all over that crisis, and we're you know we're we're the first ones in, and often the last ones to leave. And so we need literally millions of dollars within a few days to mobilize the staff to buy the uh, supplies and provisions, and and to respond in a very effective way that saves lives. Uh, but you're right. Um, in between these disasters, uh, we're doing what we call long-term development. We're working with the poorest communities in the world to help them become more prosperous by kind of tackling those underlying causes of their poverty. So it's teaching them about health and how to have healthy children and healthy, safe childbirth. And we're promoting education and economic opportunities for them. And our goal is to help these communities uh, stand on their own two feet, uh, take leadership and responsibility for their own communities uh, in, in new ways so that we can actually leave 10 or 15 years later and those communities are now self-sufficient and prospering and growing and, and, and healthier. So, But that work is uh, less newsworthy. You know, good news like that doesn't hit the news. And so that's why when you sponsor a child, it helps us fund that long-term work, which, by the way, makes communities more resilient when a disaster strikes. Uh, in fact, if you look at the places where World Vision has worked for 10 or 15 years, they're very famine resistant because of all the work we've done with farmers and agriculture methods and food security and environmental things. So uh, you can actually make communities more resilient so when there is a disaster, it doesn't ha have such a devastating effect. Our guest on today's conversation has been Rich Stearns, president of World Vision U.S. I'm Leith Anderson, and on behalf of us all, very special thanks to Rich. The National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we connect and represent evangelical Christians in the United States. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please follow along on Twitter at NAEvangelicals or on our Facebook page for the National Association of Evangelicals. And sign up for our email list when you visit our website at nae.net. <laughs>